Bill, Bill is such a cool dad, isn't he? Like, as he was starting to, to welcome us here, you might have heard him, he said, you know, you might notice that, and he pointed to the clipboards, and I thought he was going to say, you might notice that my daughter is sitting, <laughs> because if that was me, I think, like, front and center on my mind, uh, doting Aunt Nettie here is a little maybe more consumed about. I, I was joking with Rachel that this should probably go in Lucy's little memory book, her first sermon by Aunt Nettie. <laughs> so... Anyway, it's great to see so many of you. I know we're a little slim on attendance. I think the Chiefs are playing today at noon. So, no, I'm kidding. I think, <laughs> I think it's the snow, probably. But for you who made it out, let me just say, um, I think we are in for such a treat. The, the words that we're going to spend some time focusing on today have really blessed me, even as I've been meditating on them the past, uh, these past few days. So let's open with a word of prayer, if you join me. Uh, dear Father, we want to pause just for a minute and invite, invite your help, your presence with us as we gather. Uh, God, I want to ask that you would just quicken these words to us. Um, each one comes in from so many different experiences over the past week, from so many different uh, life realities. And even as we look ahead to the, to the holiday week, um, there's going to be a bazillion different dynamics playing out. And each one of us, uh, your sons and daughters, uh, we need a different word from you. And I thank you so much that not only are you the father, son, not only, or excuse me, not only are you the father God, not only did you give your son, but also when your son uh, was raised to life and seated at, at your right hand, you gave the gift of your spirit who is working among us now, who indwells those who put their faith in Jesus. And I just pray that your spirit would, uh, would really be at work here today, that you would animate these words for us and just meet us, meet us at our point of need and refresh us. Lord, I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, um, I don't know about for you, but for me, part of the stress of holidays is not just all the things on my task list, it's not just the family dynamics, but it is also this perpetual Christmas soundtrack that like booms in the background. And it's like the department stores get together and they, they've picked like the f- same five songs, right? Like, like the same five that you're going to hear kind of over and over. And as I sometimes, I mean, you know, sometimes I can just really tune in and I'm, I'm there. But um, on other occasions, it's almost like that the music just like adds to my stress level. My blood, I can feel my blood pressure raising with every rendition of, of Here Comes Santa Claus. Um, and I actually, I love the Christmas song. It's, I guess, the Christmas carol, Mary Did You Know. I actually think it's a beautiful song. But I had to chuckle when I saw a friend of mine who put a Facebook post Mary knows already. Mary knows. <laughs> I was like, yes, I, like, I understand that. I've kind of had a complicated relationship with Christmas music and movies and soundtracks. Um, on one hand, I mean, when I see this guy, I'm flipping through channels, like, boom, I can, like, go back to, like, my second grade year, you know, like, whatever year, maybe it's kindergarten. But, I mean, I have, like, some nostalgia around this guy, and it can be kind of a heartwarming thing. And um, there's another one of my favorites is a, is a show called Santa's Workshop, which 
For years, I thought this was some sort of American rite of passage, right? Like, every kid from every state, from every generation is, like, grown up watching this Santa, this Santa's workshop show. And I would, you know, on the best times of reminiscing Christmases gone by, I would, you know, try to bring up Santa's workshop. And inevitably, my friend's eyes would just kind of glaze over. Especially, I, there's, this, there's this elf helper, and every time I tried to, like, explain it, I would lose my... Well, years later, I I came to learn that this is like a local mom-and-pop program. I mean, you know, there's a couple hundred Kansas farm kids who, like, watch... So, and and I think it's a crying shame, frankly. I think it's a... And so, an early early Christmas gift for you, um, I want to introduce you to... I mean, can you believe that happened? And, like, especially when I would try to, like, explain the elf part, you know, people were... So, anyway, I mean, you can understand. You can understand, can't you? How there were... I got off to a rocky start on Christmas, on Christmas holidays and Christmas shows. And, I mean, the fact of it is that... Um, I think a lot of people have had this experience. You know, I, actually, just this past week, I was listening. NPR did a, a, a piece. They did a piece on people's favorite holiday movies. And, I mean, it spanned the spectrum. I mean, people are all over the map on this thing. What I thought was interesting is that a lot of the movies that showed up on the NPR list were not even explicitly about Christmas. They weren't even about Christmas. But they had two things in common. They had two things in common. One, they were set in the month of December... And the second thing is that um, with what might be an exception of Die Hard, they were about love. I mean, Die Hard, you could, one could argue. But, um, but those are the two things. They, they were set in the month of December, and they were about love. Think about some of the classics. You know, it's, it's a wonderful life. Man's, this man's selfless love for his community. Elf, in his own quirky way, right? He's seeking love from his father. Clark Griswold in his own quirky way, quirky, disturbing way, trying to give love to his family. And then, of course, there's like, the, what is it, 70% of every romantic comedy that's set in, in the month of December. And it turns out, you guys, that these Christmas movies don't need trees, they don't need cookies. What, what's the package? The package that sings is Christmas and love. Um, now, I know what some of you are thinking uh, some of you are thinking, oh my goodness, what is going on? She's like, how cliche can you get a Christmas message uh, on love? <laughs> but I want to tease out this connection because I, I think there's something that, that really goes together here. And I, here's what I think it is. Here's my theory. And I think this is J- John's theory too, based on the words that we just read in First John. I think that Christmas go together so often and so well because Christmas redefines love. And I want to spend a little bit of time kind of talking and thinking about that today. Before we do, as you can see, and look, I might have known it was just going to be a small group. I got my whiteboard out here. I want to spend a little time as a family. I'm going to need your help here. Um, I want us just to think a little bit about what is love, actually, okay? And uh, you might say love actually is yet another Christmas romantic comedy, because it is. I'm not even trying to force this connection. It's really there. But truly, I want to hear just some, I mean, it can just be a word. When do you experience love? Uh, you know, what is love? As, you, as we define it, as our culture defines it, just give me, just somebody shout it out. Don't make me look like an idiot. Come on. 
Acceptance. What else? Selfless. Ooh, were you peeking at my notes? <laughs> Just give me two more. Ooh, whoa, okay. I, I hadn't brainstormed that one. <laughs> I'm not married. Maybe it's kind of... <laughs> what else? There's another, like somebody's dying to say it. What? Oh, sacrifice. Okay, and somebody's getting greedy and wanting another one. Someone put happy. Happiness. Okay, that's right. So, very good. I mean, very, very good. Thank you. Thank you. And in fact, I think in a way, uh, the, the definitions that we've just sort of brainstormed here have already surpassed Elf and Clark Griswold. <laughs> so, so, we kind of come up with some definitions. Now I want to think about this relationship, this thing of love connecting with Christmas. And I've already tipped my hand and said, and I think part of this has to do with the fact that Christmas redefines love. You know, a movie, a movie, however much your heart may flutter, cannot give the meaning of love, right? It can set a context. It can introduce us to characters that tell a compelling story. It'll make us feel warm and cozy. But at the end of the day, you know, in the deepest parts of ourself, we know that love is deeper than that. Um, and you don't, have to you don't have to believe in Jesus or the Bible. You don't have to be a Christian to understand that, right? This is part of our humanity. This is a deep longing that, that runs deep within the soul of every person. And it's queued up in some unique ways. Uh, sometimes over Christmas, other times in, in other moments. Um, I want to ask you to consider one, one last hol holiday flick. It's a movie called You've Got Mail. I think there are basically two reasons to watch this film. One is to learn about the people of olden day who access their email via internet dial-up. <laughs> and if, like me, you watch this movie in the theater, you realize like every subsequent viewing just makes you feel old, you know? <laughs> but I think the second reason to watch this film is a powerful scene that takes place about a third of the way in when the female lead, Kathleen, She's decorating for Christmas, and she begins to reflect on the season, and she starts to tap into this deep place in her own emotions. And as we watch her, we enter into this very honest, very human scene. And the scene kicks off with a Joni Mitchell song. It's coming on Christmas, they're cutting down trees. Do you know that Joni Mitchell song? She's writing this. I wish I had a river I could skate away on. Such a sad song. And not really about Christmas at all, but I was thinking about it tonight as I was decorating my Christmas tree, unwrapping funky ornaments made of popsicle sticks, and missing my mother so much I almost couldn't breathe. I, I always miss my mother at Christmas, but somehow it's worse this year since I need some advice from her. I need her to make me some cocoa and tell me th that everything going badly in my life will sort itself out. I love those lines. I love them because I think in their own way, they point to this deep experience that I'm talking about, this, this place of being human, this, this fundamental need that we have for love. You know, popsicle stick ornaments. Popsicle stick ornaments. Say that five times fast. <laughs> and mom. You know, that's a couple of things that many of us don't have around anymore, at least not in the way we once did. Or maybe we never had those around, you know? Intense longing, 
this phrase, missing my mom so much I almost couldn't breathe. Hard days are tough. Hard holidays are tougher. And in this scene, there's this sorrow that we can all connect to as we feel our hearts aching over everything badly in life that needs sorting out. You know, so Hollywood can take us here, this, this connection in touch with these places of ourselves. Maybe it's not even Hollywood. Maybe it's a memory or everything just going badly in life. But here's the real question. Where does it take us next? You know, what, what then? After Kathleen sorts out her life and, you know, lives hap- happily ever after with the internet heartthrob, when, when Clark Griswold finally lands the Christmas bonus, <laughs> you know, is everything right in the world? Is everything okay? What about me? What about you? What about real life, right? Is there a script that we can take home? You know, when I find myself in these places where I'm bumping into kind of my true self, maybe the the underside, I often feel vulnerable. Um, I'm aware that I have needs. I'm tender. You know, many of us, probably if you're like me, you're a little road-weary. You know, we've been here before. And in light of this, this space where we can find ourselves, you know, holidays or not, space where we can find ourselves, when I turn to the words of 1 John, I find myself stunned. I mean, whiplash might actually be the better word for it, you know. Um, Beloved, John writes, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Okay. Is is that what I needed? (laughs) You know, love one another, head spinning. In this moment of my neediness, (laughs) uh, you know, I don't think that's what I was hoping for. Maybe a date. Maybe a babysitter. Maybe a new marriage or a mother-in-law who could, like, respect me. I mean, I don't know. But I, that's, the words of First John are not, like, what pops to mind, right? And especially as this passage continues, it's, it's impossible to miss this radical reorientation that happens here on God and others. And, you know, I think if First John stopped right there, we would probably just have to pack up and go home right now. I mean, basically the message would be, hey, go love good luck, and I would probably add, call me when the new Meg Ryan film hits the theater, <laughs> because I will be looking for an escape. <laughs> but the fact is that John, that First John 4 does not end there. It keeps going. And the script that it brings to us is no less interesting or compelling than these Hollywood films we've been talking about. You see where it goes? This is not, First John 4 is not sleepless in Seattle, grieving widows searching for soulmate. Or while you were sleeping, lonely transit worker faking engagement over the holidays. But First John 4 is just as gritty. It's just as real as, as, this, uh, as this compelling, all these compelling plots with these characters who are living true lives. Who know heartache, who know love, who know fear. Abandoned homeless newlyweds swaddling their baby in the cold. The difference, and this matters, is that this actually happened. And it didn't just happen as a quaint story that was meant to be told throughout the ages. You know, I don't know, pick your Christmas carol. But it happened as a script that was handwritten 
by the God who created the universe, the God who made the world and then eventually, many years later, brought you into existence. And it was written not in an abstract way, but written for you and for me. Isn't, isn't it fascinating? I find this mind-blowing that one of the preeminent texts on love in all of the New Testament puts Christmas right at the bullseye. You know, it's the centerpiece of this passage. It's not just a theme. It's not just a setting. No, it's the definition. It says the very manifestation of love. Look again at, at verses 9 through 10. Actually, both verse 9 and verse 10. Just a, there are two parallel phrases. In this, verse 9 says, the love of God was made manifest. And verse 10 is a little shorter. It says, in this is love. And then both of these phrases point to one thing, to Christmas, to God-giving Son. Or to say it a little more exactly, as it says in the text, God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live. Not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son. Now this true script may be maybe a plot worth hanging on to. And if we did take it home, if we decided to cling to this plot as the people we are in these needy, vulnerable, beautiful spaces even, we, we might find this other way. And, you know, the fact is that we need another way. Our approach, our approach isn't working. Our escape into other people's stories is empty. Our longing within ourself that always puts ourself at the center, it's not paying off. And we, we can't seem to get this story right on our own. And the provocative, amazing message of the gospel is that God busted into this set here on planet earth, and he inserted a scene that would change the game. Christmas redefines love. It's a radical edit. It is a hard-cutting high-paced drama that begins to unfold with baby Jesus. But then so is the drama of our lives. Christmas redefines love in three ways, I think. I think it shows us that love is self-giving, that love is within reach, and that love is bigger than us. First is peace, that love is self-giving. You know, we've hit on this a little bit already, right, with these definitions. I mean, we, we know this, And yet, this is not intuitive for us. And forget about Christmas. Forget about, you know, true moments of humanity. This is just not where I wake up, right? Uh, My mind, your mind, I'm going to venture to say, never naturally thinks about sacrifice, you know? This is just not the way we enter into the world. And of course, of course, we know, we know that love gives right? Love gives, love compromises, love takes some blows. Yes, yes. And the thing is that that's not what this text is about. And that is not what the story of Christmas is about. Not that kind of love that we know. This text is not about giving. This text is about second-degree giving. And I, I kind of made that phrase up, <laughs> I think. You know how you think you're original, and then you go online, and you realize, like, Oh, everyone else already calls it that. <laughs> but I was in a conversation many years ago. It was probably my college years, maybe right after I graduated. And I was chatting with a girlfriend of mine who had spent the summer doing cross-cultural ministry in Croc, Mexico. 
uh, working six days a week hosting groups of students. She had hosted them for a week at a time. She worked with about seven other colleagues, or about eight of them, who shared these tight quarters in Mexico, no air conditioning, one bathroom. I mean, you know, the three things you need to realize from the story is she worked week in, week out with adolescent students. They lived in Croc, Mexico, with no air conditioning, and the girls shared one bathroom. Okay, right? You might understand how I term the phrase second-degree giving. It's the giving after you gave. As I was meditating on the text this week, several times I tried to ask myself, you know, forget about throwing myself in front of a train. You know, when was the last time that I actually just said no to myself? I think, for me, that, that feels like kind of a starting place, maybe a baby step. Before I can give myself away... I might even just have to get some part of myself freed up, available. I think it was clear to God from the beginning that we were going to need some extra help on this one, the second degree giving. We, we were going to need some live instruction, right? The, the YouTube tutorial was an essential for us. You know, it's like knitting. You cannot read the instruction manual and make it work, okay? It's like we need live instruction that I can see, that I can hear, that I can rewind, And, you know, God knew that this was going to be important, that we get this flesh and blood. And so that's what he did in this baby Jesus. It's the pinnacle of second-degree giving. I want to look at the text a little more specifically because I think it's so helpful on teasing out the way the self-giving love works, okay? So look at verse 9. First off, I want you to see this this very first principle of self-giving love is that this love pursues— You know, verse 9 says, God sent his only son into the world that we might live. Some of you might think how familiar those words in the letter of John are with the gospel of John in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. God himself came. He came and he chased after rebellious people, not after people who loved him, not after people who would, would... give respect, but after people who would hate him, people who would crucify him. You know, I think the Christmas story is so familiar just to remember that this God became flesh. He was born 2,000 years ago as a helpless child asleep under the stars that he made in pursuit of us. And not us in some general humanity sense, right? But in pursuit of you, beloved, John says, He uses that term twice in our verses. Chosen one. God's given everything for you. He's given up everything. You know, when was the last time that you pursued someone who would give you nothing in return? When did you last serve someone knowing that you'd have zero benefit at the end? That's Christmas. That's Christmas. Second thing that I think our text shows us about the self-giving love is that it always goes first. Do you see that in the text in verse 10? Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. He loved us first. This love is flowing from God. You know, God's not waiting on some sort of arrangement, you know, working out terms that will make this a fair deal. He's not a reluctant negotiator. Do you ever have those friends who are not really your friends? (laughs) It's like they're really excited about doing something with you as long as you're the coolest gig in town. You know, they're a little weary of making a commitment. (laughs) that's not God. That's not God's love. God goes first. And he's not stingy. He's not working with these limited resources. And moving from our text to the Christmas narrative in Luke, 
um, we see the story of Christmas gushing with these same kinds of elaborate expressions of love, of grace, of favor. I've been so struck this year by how saturated that theme is in the Christmas story. And this, this kind of favor, this kind of elaborate love is arriving to common, unsuspecting, undeserving folks who frankly don't know what to do with it. I love the account in Luke 1 when the angel Gabriel first meets up with Mary and he comes to her and he says, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. And before anything else happens, before a Christ child is promised, before a new kingdom, a new way in this world is announced, before a kingdom that would never end, before the miracle of conception, the text in Luke reads that Mary was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Mary was troubled by the favor of God. And indeed, as you continue reading through the Christmas story, what most of the characters are unsettled by, and actually the word in the text is fearful about, is that God's favor has come upon them. God's grace has found them right there in the middle of their normal. While the carpenter sleeps, while the shepherds keep watch, while the wise men look at stars, the love of God flows. And the love of God flows because that's what the love of God does. It comes, it initiates, and the self-giving love of God goes first. And finally, I think this passage really helps us understand the way that self-giving love takes our sins seriously, but it forgives. That's this idea in verse 10. In this is love, that God sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. You know, when God gave us baby Jesus, he did not do so at the expense of his justice or holiness. He did not set aside his judgment on sin. In the world where we live, (laughs) y'all, with headlines that reflect brokenness and wickedness even, on everyday occasion, that would not have been a gift from God's hand. You know, ignoring something that's happening doesn't make it untrue, doesn't make it go away, doesn't make it better. So the love of God came wide-eyed into our world. It saw every part of our wickedness. It named every part of our sin. Indeed, it knows all the ways, past, present, and future, that we will rebel and push against this God. And yet, the love of God forgives. How? How does he do this? Well, this word propitiation really sums it up. (laughs) You might have guessed. It's a theological term. (laughs) That means satisfaction, or more specifically, a sacrifice that bears God's wrath and turns it into favor. This is the Christmas story. Baby in the manger turned Messiah on the cross. This is second-degree giving, giving after you gave. And, you know, we long to encounter this, to receive God's love in this way, to become people who can also extend this kind of love. You know, even on those bad days. Even when we're needy. And this is the beautiful part of the redefinition that happens in Christmas. And that is that self-giving love is within our reach. Now, here in just a minute, I want us to look back on those first verses in in 7 and 8. But I think it's helpful to remember, before we do that, who wrote this letter? This letter was written by Jesus' disciple John, 
right? Doing a little homework this week, I realized that this is the same John who, in the book of Luke, asked Jesus if they could all call fire down from heaven and take out a bunch of Samaritans who were rejecting them, right? (laughs) Jesus gave a loving rebuke. (laughs) He truly did. I mean, you can go back and look at it. Uh, So John has known this Messiah, right? He's known this Messiah, both the truth and the love of this Messiah. But it is clear from John's writing that it's his encounter with the love of God that has been truly transformative. As as we've mentioned, this is the same John who authored the gospel by his same name, where five times he refers to himself as the one whom Jesus loved. He was a close friend of Jesus, one of three, who was there when God spoke a blessing from heaven over his son. Do you guys remember that, that scene? God the Father, before Jesus has done one miracle, before Jesus has has come out with his public ministry, God the Father looks down from heaven and he speaks a word of blessing over his son. Anybody remember what he says? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And John seems to latch onto that word beloved, as we've already heard from our text today. Seven more times in these really teeny tiny letters, seven more times, John will use that term again, beloved. And maybe the most striking thing about the six verses that we're looking at today is that 15 times, 15 times in these verses, John uses some form of the word agape, or love. Is the deck stacked? (laughs) The deck is stacked. John is refusing to let us miss this. It's everywhere. And then in verse 8, John makes it explicit. You see that? God is love. This isn't a side trait. This isn't something God dabbles in and extra, you know, toppings on the burger. <laughs> no, this is God's essential nature, divine DNA. And what we see in verse 7 is that this nature gets passed on to all the kids. Whoever loves has been born of, has been born of God and knows God. This isn't a maybe. This is a dominant trait. I love how Calvin puts it. If anyone separates faith from love, it's as if you were trying to take away heat from the sun. God's children love. And here's why. Because we are the beloved. Because we have first received this amazing love. And we don't have to wake up every morning with a fundamental need to prove it. Sadly, I, I bury that truth on far too many occasions when I hear that alarm go off. But we aren't called to start every day from scratch. You know, with some sort of sales quota quota hanging on our back, hanging over our head, scraping together little emblems that show that we're worthy, that prove ourselves again and again. No, as children of God, for those who put their faith in Jesus, he becomes our life. He takes our place. And he is our worth. And so I don't have to operate from a place of scarcity in which I'm piecing together reasons for somebody to love me because of what I do, or what I have, or what someone else says or thinks about me. No. Right here, as is, God loves me. Now. Shepherd in the field, teen with child, sleepless in Seattle. (laughs) We are God's beloved. And the one verdict that counts, the one vote that we need, is not from the (laughs) father-in-law— It has been cast, and it is from God. In Jesus, God has called us the beloved. Now, I mean, talk about needing 
needing some help on this, needing a YouTube tutorial, right? Have you ever heard someone say that Christians need to preach the gospel to themselves every day? This right here, this part right here is what they're talking about. Because this message of unconditional love in Jesus, a love that truly sees you, truly sees every part of you, and promises grace-filled change, that kind of love is nearly impossible to trust. That's why Ephesians 2 talks about that love, this kind of grace and faith, as being a gift that comes from God. And you know, later in, in some of the Gospels, actually in the Gospel of John, Jesus will tell Nicodemus that he must be born again. There's some mystery here, right? There's some miracle. And, you know, I struggle with this. I, I've been joking about this YouTube thing or talking about the tutorial, but I actually want to say there really is something out there on, you, on YouTube, and I reference it probably three, four times a year. It's a little 20-minute piece, and I, mean, I, I commend it to you. If you just need to wake up and have a minute where, the, where you preach this gospel to yourself, uh, it's a 20-minute piece called Being the Beloved. You want the full version. And there's a man named Henry Nowen who has quite a story in his own right. And um, he, spends a, he spends 20 minutes just reminding us of this, this central core truth of Christmas and life. Um, and one other thought I had as I was prepping for this message is that um, I've been really encouraged by a little Christmas book that someone put together with, a, it's a, a grouping of Martin Luther's sermons. So Martin Luther did dozens of sermons that were all on Christmas. And some guy put together a book called Martin Luther's Christmas Book, and it's just an extended reflection from all of his sermons, and it just tells a Christmas story. And, um, you know, if you need a little space to, to meditate or to kind of work this into your soul, uh, those are two thoughts that I have. These aren't easy these aren't easy truths to really embrace. It's one thing to get it here, but to like really know it is such a different matter. That's why Jesus' coming was so central. So Christmas shows us that love is self-giving and that this self-giving love is within reach. Reach for it. Reach for it. Whether you've been following Jesus for many years or you're just starting out, I encourage you to... Become the beloved that God so longs for us to be. And then finally, there's just a tiny bit more, if you can believe. There's a tiny bit more. Christmas shows us that love is bigger than us. You know, I think we often start out thinking about love as a pretty personal thing. You know, we frame it individually. I've got, you know, myself, my nuclear family. Maybe eventually I add a spouse, a dog, you know. It's all sort of two-dimensional, maybe over a few generations. But verse 11 really reframes that for us. Notice again the radical reorientation on God and others. Verse 11, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And here John retraces the route that he's already laid out. It's only after we have received this self-giving love that we have it to give. But then it is there and it is available for all the others. You know, love is bigger than us. I love how John Piper sums this up, I think, so well. When he poses the question, do you feel loved by God because you believe he makes much of you or because you believe he frees you and empowers you to enjoy making much of him? 
This is at the heart of what John's saying. You know, there's no mistaking it. First John, Christmas story, God is the star of the show. And every supporting cast member, including the Christ child, is giving honor and glory to God, this creator. And the way we do this, this is the tricky part, the way we do this is by trusting him, by receiving from him as the source, by naming him and worshiping him as the source of this life and this love. And yet, this is the crazy part. This is the unique, significant role that we play. Look at verse 12. It's so fascinating because John says we still have a role to play. It seems there's some way in which our love for one another, as we receive this love for God, we have this love for one, for one another, that act somehow makes God more visible, more seen, more present. Verse 12, no one has ever seen God. And that seems to be a reference there to God in all of his glory. You know, God is this mysterious trinity, Father, Son, Spirit. None of us, including John, have had full access to seeing that God. But if we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. And right there, John suggests that somehow our love for one another is one way in which we will see God, or we'll see him better. God, constantly living among us as we love, continuing to perfect his image in us. It reminds me of that line, I think it's lame is, it says, to love another person is to see the face of God. You know, that line is so powerful. You know, a text like this, I think, really kind of makes involvement in some kind of faith community a no-brainer, right? I mean, it's just this reminder that you cannot do this apart from people. And, and there has to be this exchange happening for you to really be in the fullness of the design that God has. And I think it's, it's a reminder for us— Bill mentioned earlier that we're launching some community groups in January. That would be, I think, another really specific next step that could be taken to, to just start living into this, begin to embody this truth that we're talking and reflecting on this morning. You know, we want you for these community groups, and we need you to see the face of God. What promises we have been given in love redefined. This love, this redefinition is that love— is self-giving, it's within reach, and it's bigger than we could have dreamed. Well, as we move toward the closing of our service today, um, I want to invite us to share in the Lord's Supper, to partake in communion, sometimes also called the Eucharist. Um, and as you guys, many of you know, this is not just a ritual, but I think it's important to remember and remind ourselves that it's not just some habit we do, and it's certainly not a show of our perfect faith, you know, in fact, Christ instituted this supper because we need it, because he knew we would need to preach this gospel to ourselves. As one theologian said, our faith is feeble, and it needs to be propped up on all sides and sustained by every means. I don't know about y'all, but I am starving on any given day for this kind of nourishment and help, maybe especially this time of year. And in the Lord's Supper, here's what's going on here. Jesus, this is symbolic, that Jesus humbly condescends and he uses these very common elements, everyday bread and wine, to signify, to seal to us his very uncommon love. The bread and the cup are God's way of telling believers who eat this meal that Christ is sufficient to give them this life for them to know this love. And we hunger for this meal in which God feeds us 
the grace, the favor of Jesus, this meal nourishes and strengthens our faith. And communion, the way it's been established, is open for all, for all who have put their faith in Christ. And, and the scriptures tell us we're to partake in this, this time at the Lord's table in a worthy manner, that we would examine ourselves, repenting of sin, where we've, you know, we've been off placing ourselves at the center, but instead turn with repentance, trusting again in Christ for life, for direction. And as we gather, that we discern Christ's presence with us as we eat. And this is not to say that the table is for those who have their lives together. Exactly the opposite. This is a table for those who hunger, for those who hurt, for those weighed down by shame and guilt, for those who need and want to be fed by this author of life, this Savior Jesus. Not a prize for the perfect, but it is powerful medicine and nourishment. So here at Christ Community, uh, as I mentioned, you don't have to be a, a member of our specific church, but all followers of Jesus are welcome to the table. And of course, if you'd rather, you're welcome just to remain in your seat and use this time to reflect and pray. Uh, we also do have uh, an opportunity to pray. We'll have some people available to pray with you. As Bill said, we, we think it's an important part of what it is to just journey through life together and what it is to love one another. A lot of that is just even taking these concerns up to God in prayer. If you'd like some prayer, that'll happen in this back corner. And when, when you come, what'll happen is as we start communion, we'll have the music going and there will be four different stations. And we just invite you to come up and gather in groups of four, five, or six. Just wait until there's a little small group there and take the bread, dip it in the cup, and then partake together as a group. There are four stations. As I mentioned, I think what, this one back here is gluten-free. And, um, and when you go up to receive communion, one thing we found here, these, these pews are pretty tight. <laughs> and so we found that it works well to uh, exit through the side aisles and then return through the center aisle. So if that will kind of help us. And don't be afraid just kind of bumping into each other. Uh, consider it uh, just a, an expression of our love for one another. It's a little bit tight, but we're a family here, and, and it's okay to do it, to bump into each other. Take your time. And just may this communion, the partaking from the Lord's table, be a reminder of this lavish love that we've been meditating on this morning.